The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We are grateful to have represented you in the Ukraine for the last uh, week or so. This is Kiev Theological Seminary. I was privileged to speak in their chapel. The guy to my right up there, or to your right up there, is Anatoly Prokopchik. Anatoly is the founder of Kiev Seminary. He's been to TBC many times. And uh, by God's grace, that seminary is thriving. They have several hundred students from throughout the former Soviet Union, not just Ukraine, but places like Belarus and Bulgaria and Albania and uh, all the other nations throughout the Soviet Union. Uh, They have uh, several hundred students there, and it's really a privilege to serve with them. We went to celebrate a 20-year reunion with our fellow uh, with our sister church in uh, Belisarkov, Ukraine. And uh, when we went for the first time in 1992, there were about 200 people, I would say, in the churches there. And over the years, by God's grace, they have planted six other churches. So they're now seven churches, and they probably have a little bit over 2,000 people in all those churches. Amazing, isn't it, what God has done? These are the pastors of that. Pavel Marchuk, I was, oh, I, I'm sorry, I did that. Uh, Pavel Marchuk is the pastor of our sister church, and this is their building, actually. That's his brother, Victor. Victor's an interesting story. He passes a church in a little village called Uzim, and as that church began to grow, he was beaten one night on his way home, and uh, come to find out the Orthodox leadership, the uh, Russian Orthodox leadership became jealous of his success. They hired a couple of brutes to do that, and uh, he's been compromised in some ways ever since health-wise. This is uh, Sergei Lazarenko. We call him Jack Jones. He looks like Jack Jones who attends TBC a little bit. And uh, so he's always wanting Jack Jones' passport from here. Uh, this is Stephen. I don't know his last name. This is Kolya. If you've been to Ukraine, we call him Hot Wheels because he drives like a madman. I don't know his last name either. But uh, these are faithful men who honor God. This is a pastor from Cleburne, Texas, David and Hartog, who's actually, they have adopted uh, Sergey's church, the guy right here. This was the 20-year celebration. Uh, They had over 1,200 folks that joined together that evening, and it was really a time of honoring the Lord for the work he's done in our relationship over the years. They take our sister church relationship very seriously, and uh, we are grateful for all that's happened over the years. We've had numerous people go and lead camps. Uh, We had the O'Neill family went and lived there for a year, and uh, we've had numerous folks go for pastor's conferences, and they send Bolshoid Priviets. That's great big hellos to TBC and the great work we've done. Every year, we sponsor a pastor's conference. By their tally, we've had over 2,000 different pastors attend that conference. TVC supports that. So through your generosity and by God's grace, once again, you're impacting a nation for Jesus. And we say, to him be the glory, great things he's done. And we're honored to have been a small part of what's happening there. Second Chronicles chapter 34. We continue our look at different prophets and kings. This morning we look at the King Josiah. The prophet during his time was a guy named Zephaniah. I'm not going to look at it this morning. You can a little later. Uh, Zephaniah is a prophet who prophesied during his time. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 34 of Second Chronicles. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Now, that's not a misprint. (laughs) He was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the Lord, seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, 
and the molten images. Father, we have uh, worshipped in song. We have celebrated our freedom. And now we turn to the word to be taught. Touch our hearts in deep places. In Christ's name, amen. Josiah. Some of us name our kids Josiah. There's not a bad thing said about Josiah in the scriptures. Not anywhere. He's a man of character. He's a godly man. He is actually a teenage reformer. He was a teenage reformer. You remember Mark Twain's advice regarding teenagers? He said uh, when your 12-year-old becomes a teenager, a 13-year-old, you put them in a pickle barrel and you nail the top shut and you feed them through the hole in the pickle barrel. When they turn 16, you plug up the hole in the pickle barrel. That was Mark Twain's advice. Now, when our kids were teenagers, and that was a lot of years ago, one thing our kids did for us when they were teenagers was increase our prayer life. I mean, they did a great job of doing it, especially when they started driving. Can you relate if you've got teenagers? I mean, they just increase your prayer life. Teenage girl had just received a learner's permit. She was offered to drive her parents to church. After a hair-raising ride, they finally reached the church. When they got out of the car, the mother emphatically screamed out, Thank you. The daughter said, Any time. The mother said, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to God. <laughs> I remember one when our daughter first got her learner's or first got her driver's license, uh, Celeste and our friend from Rwanda was visiting, and he stayed at our house that weekend, and uh, Sarah had to take him somewhere. I forget the details. All I remember is when we came to dinner that night, he said, The whole time I was driving with Sarah, it was she was driving me around, and that hymn kept coming to my mind, Nearer my God to thee. But, you know, I'm not here to diss on our teenagers. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to encourage you today. Over the years at TBC, we've had some great teenagers. We've seen teens who have become godly men and women. We've seen teens, we see teens who serve one another. We see teens who are serious about their faith. We see teens who love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart. We see teens who honor their parents. We have teens in our body who stay pure. We see teens who have impacted us through impact. They have literally given up weeks of their summers, and they've ministered to thousands and thousands of kids in our neighborhoods and our backyards. And we are honored as a body to have strong teenagers. We are blessed with that. And I want to do something a little differently this morning. If you're a teenager, I want you to stand right where you are and keep standing. You're a teenager. Got a bunch of them over here, I would imagine. Bunch of you guys over here. We want to honor you this morning. Look at these guys. I mean a bunch of them. Keep standing, guys. Keep standing. Keep, keep standing. Keep standing. I, I want You keep standing. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you right now. We are blessed. When people start talking about the future of our nation, I say, take a look at these guys. There's a future that is unharnessed, and we'll be, these guys will use their power and use their godliness, hopefully, over the years to accomplish great things for God. I want to pray for these guys. If you're close to a teenager, you just place your hand on them. If you're around them, get up. Get out of your seats. Go, talk, go touch a teenager. Hop up. I'm going to Hop up. Got a bunch of them over here. Nobody touching them. I want every teenager touched right now. Hop up, guys. Hop up. Let's go. Back over there. Get up. Every teenager needs a hand on them somewhere. There we go. Go find one. There you go. Father, we are grateful for these young people. We're grateful, Father, that they've chosen to even worship today. Many of their peers don't do that. And so, Father, I pray blessing over them. I pray that you will raise them up. Some of them probably don't know Jesus yet. I pray today would be an eternal change for them. Those that know Jesus, I pray they'd walk with Jesus. They'd honor you. Their lives would be different because of who you are in their lives. And I pray that you will use them in great ways to accomplish great things in the future. Bless them this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being part of this body, young people. We honor you this day.
Well, Josiah was one of you. If you were standing right there, not the guy standing touching you, those old guys, but if you were a teenager who stood up and you, we, we honor you this day, Josiah was one of you. He was eight years old when he became king, but if you look at verse 3, it was the eighth year of his reign when he began to seek after God. So when you look at Josiah, he's 16 years old, and he begins to make a difference. If you look at verse 3, it says about him, he began to seek God. If you write in your Bibles, underline the word seek or circle it. It's the most important thing about Josiah. He became a seeker of God. The Hebrew word for seek there means to look for intensely and to search for it's like when you, when you misplace your car keys, when you leave your phone somewhere and can't find it, or when your kids wander away from you in the store, you look for them intensely and you search for them. That was Josiah. He's searching for God. He's looking for God. To, to pursue God and seek God is to spend time in the presence of God. Each of us should be pursuers of God and seekers of God. It means spending time alone with Him. It means spending time in His Word, spending time in worship, spending time in prayer. When you pursue God and seek God, you do so with the community of Christ's followers. You find other believers and you begin to pursue God with them. When you pursue God and seek God, you come and hear the Word of God and you respond to the Word of God. Josiah was 16 years old when he began to pursue God. And some of you say, well, he probably had a godly mom and daddy. I I don't know anything about his mama, but I can tell you he had an ungodly daddy. If you look at the previous chapter, beginning in verse 21, it says Amnon, that's his father, was 22 when he became king and he only reigned for two years. Why for only two years? It's interesting. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, and Amnon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself like his father Manasseh did, but he multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him, and they put him to death in his own house. Josiah's father was not a godly man. He was an ungodly man. He was a pagan follower. He was not a God follower. In fact, Josiah, the young eight-year-old who at 16 became a man who led his nation through reformation, was not a man who had a godly example. And so if you are a first-generation believer in your family, if you do not have a godly heritage, godly mamas and daddies, you can look at Josiah and say, you can be a product of your past and not a prisoner of your past. And here's Josiah, this godly young man who had an ungodly father, but God, through his grace, instilled in him a love for Jehovah. And the result of that, he became a young teenage ruler who turned his nation back to God. Back to God. And by the way, for us as parents and grandparents, one of the greatest things we can do is to leave our kids not a portfolio of stocks and bonds and money, even though I'm sure they would appreciate that. The greatest thing we can leave them is a legacy of walking with Jesus. The greatest thing we can give to the next generation is an example of what it means to honor the Savior, love the Savior, and to walk with the Savior. And so it's my prayer that we will be a generation who is not like Amnon, the father of Josiah, but will be a generation who loves Jesus and honors Jesus. Josiah, the king, began to seek God, and he changed the nation. One person can have a great impact. One teenager had a great impact. A number of us were away for Thursday and Friday at a conference called the Right Now Conference. We took elders and uh, staff and a few of our younger leaders with us for two days. And the final speaker we heard was a guy named Efshin Ziafat. How many of you have heard Efshin speak before? Great speaker, great speaker. He's a pastor in Frisco. And uh, he, he's, I'm going to show you his testimony at the end of the service, actually. He's Iranian. His father was the president of the uh, uh, Muslim Medical Society in Houston for many years. 
But he was relating to us a story of a teenager who also made a great impact. His name is B.J. Higgins. This is a book written by his parents, Britt and Deanna uh, Higgins, and it has excerpts from his journal, and it says, One Student's Story of Passion, Service, and Faith. And he's a young man who embraced Jesus at an early age. Six or seven years old, he was saved. I haven't read the book. I'm just relating the story from Efshin. He came to know Christ at six or seven as a young teenager. He, he was serious about his faith, and so he was not concerned about the acceptance of his peers. He was con- concerned about his peer salvation. So he became one who shared his faith regularly. And one day, as he was spending time with God, <clears throat> he felt impressed by God that he should be a missionary to Morocco the Muslim country of Morocco. So he came to his sister and said, I think God is calling me this for a lifetime, and I think he wants you to come as well. And so this 15-year-old boy has this burden in his heart to become a missionary to a Muslim country, Morocco. That same year, his parents took him on a short-term missionary trip trip to Peru. Uh, Sadly, he contracted some type of deadly virus, and at age 15, he went to glory, went to be in the presence of Jesus. His parents wanted to honor him. His parents wanted to do something about his commitment to the Savior and desire to go to Morocco. He had spoke of it often. So they had his body cremated. This all took place in Oklahoma City. Had his body cremated, and they uh, hired a Muslim guide in Morocco to take them to the hillside of a village. They didn't know anything about this village. They just knew they wanted to go to Morocco with their son's ashes and spread them outside a Muslim village. And so they did that. They took his ashes uh, with his, he had one sister, so the mom, dad, and sister take uh, B.J. Higgins' ashes, and they take him to a village in Morocco. They hire a Muslim guide to take him to that village. They go to the hillside, and they spread his ashes across the hillside outside this village in Morocco. The family came home, and much to their surprise, several months later, they received communication from the man who was their guide. And he said, after watching the way that they related to one another and hearing the son's story and reading about him, he became interested in Christianity and their Muslim guide who took him to the hillside village outside of this this Muslim area in Morocco had trusted Jesus Christ as a Savior. Wow. We should be shouting amen glory. It gets better. You know what that guy does today? This Muslim guide who watched this family heard this boy's story at 15. He's now the leader of the underground church in the Moroccan villages of that country. A 16-year-old king and a 15-year-old boy. And so I tell that story to our teenagers today. You can make a difference. God can use you to his glory no matter what age. It's, you're never too young and you're never too old to pursue God. And the scriptures say he sought after God. It means he pursued him and he intensely looked for God. Not only that, but after he sought God, he purged the land. If you look at verse 3, it says he sought the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the images, the molten idols. He tore these things down. Verse 4, he chopped them into pieces. He broke them into, broke them into pieces, ground them to powder, scattered them over the graves of those who worshipped him. You see, the next thing that he did is after he spent time with God, after he sought God, then he served God. I want you to notice the order here. I think this is highly significant. He sought God, he pursued God, and then he served God. 
One of my concerns for the evangelical church in our day and age, the word missional has become a buzzword. Missional means to serve God some way. We're on a mission with God. Mission should only occur, service should only occur after we've sought God. In fact, if you look on your sheets, you've got our core values. Personal surrender is in the middle, and missional is communities after that, then missional. We seek God first, we walk with God first, and it's out of a walk with God that we serve God. My fear is that many churches are calling people to be missional, to go out and do stuff for God, but they're not really walking with God. They're not honoring God. That's humanitarianism, and there's nothing wrong with humanitarianism. We need that, but what does it profit a man if he gain the world and lose his soul? And so we go out and we serve as an overflow from our walk with Jesus. We pursue God first, then we serve God. You seek God, then you serve God. And so you look at his life, and what he did is he sought after God, and after seeking after God, he began to serve God. That's the order it should take place, because when our eyes are fixed with God, fixed upon God, we're going to want to remove sin from our lives. We're going to want to purge the land. Now, here I was this week, fly back Monday night. By the way, I was on the last plane out of Washington, D.C. Sunday two weeks ago. It's amazing. That storm came through. I got to the airport. I really thought I'd be in D.C. for days. And uh, when I got to the airport, my flight left at five minutes before midnight. There were three flights leaving D.C. Mine was the last one. So I guess God wanted me over there somehow. But the, the point of all that is, when, 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 when I got back Monday night, here I am coming back from a former communist country. We've got election on Tuesday, and uh, then Wednesday, Tuesday night, we get the results. And uh, there's so many people in an uproar, so many people wringing their hands. And then I'm studying Josiah, a godly king. And I'm looking at a man who led his people, and he purged his land. And I, like you, am appalled at some of the things we have to deal with as a nation. I'm appalled that abortion takes place. I'm appalled that same-sex marriage is a plank on anybody's agenda. I'm appalled at the uh, deficit that's crippling our future kid, our, our kids in the future. I, I'm appalled as you are those things. Our land needs to be purged. It needs to be purged. But how do you purge our land? I mean, it says he purges land of all these idols. So. Are we going to get our guns and we're going to go get our maul, you know, our, our, our sledgehammers and maul down buildings? How do you purge the land today? As followers of Christ, how do you purge the land? Well, it's pretty interesting. Jesus talks about loving three groups of people. He talks about loving our spouses. He talks about loving our neighbors. And he talks about loving our enemies. I think the way you purge the land today, if you're a Christ follower, is through loving other people. You turn unbelievers to a Savior so that they can have hope. And there are those out there that would disagree with me, but I'm going to tell you, it's the ethic of love that Christ introduced to us, and that's how you go about purging the land. And as I looked at this, I'm thinking, so here I am, coming back from this country, in our country, gone through the election process, getting email after email of hand-wringing folks in my congregation who are saying, Pastor, what's the world coming to? Let me let you in on a secret. Read the end of the book. I can tell you what it's coming to. (laughs) It ain't going to be good. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So what should we do in response to that? I mean, that's the question. I've had dozens of you ask me, how do we respond to that? Well, I've been praying about what to say and what to do about that. And God in his goodness had a friend of mine forward me an email from a pastor friend of mine. 
Jeff Wells is a pastor at Woods Edge Church in the Woodland. Jeff and I were classmates at Dallas Seminary. That's about all we have in common. One thing we don't have in common, he was a world-class marathoner who made the Olympic team that didn't go to Moscow. I was never a marathoner, but I have been to Moscow. That's about all we have in common. But Jeff presented this to his congregation, and I agree with his points. He responded to the election. He gave them five points, and I'm going to share with you these points, and I agree with all of them. We are unshaken because God is unshaken. The sun came up Wednesday morning. God was still on his throne Wednesday morning. Some of you didn't know that. You thought maybe God abdicated. God is still on his throne Wednesday morning. The real king does not reside in Washington. He does not work on Capitol Hill. In fact, the real king is not of this world. The real king is the crucified and risen Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the eternal word who became flesh and one day is coming again. And when he comes again, he's not going to come riding a donkey or an elephant. And my friends, when he comes again, he's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. And so those of you that wring your hands and, you know, at LSU, I don't know about other football teams, I can tell you, at LSU they've got a 24-hour rule. For 24 hours you can celebrate a victory or mourn a defeat and then you move on. And we need to do that as a nation and as Christian people. We need to recognize all this hand-wringing, all this shaking our heads, all this other stuff needs to go away because our God is unshaken. Secondly, government is important, but it's not all important. What do I mean by that? What does Wells mean by that? He says we are responsible to vote, to pray, to be salt and light in our culture. We're called to stand against evil, to stand against injustice. Important issues are indeed at stake. It was Edmund Burke who said all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Good men and good women, godly men and godly women need to do something. I vote, I sign petitions, I write letters, I do those things. I seek to be a responsible citizen who represents Jesus Christ in the marketplace, in the workplace, and in politics as best I can. We do that. But with that said, realize the ultimate answers are not political, economic, educational, or legislative. The, 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 the ultimate answers are found in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's it. They're not found anywhere else. He says, I remind you, we've had evangelical presidents in the recent past, yet we still had the same issues with abortion, debt, and overwhelming problems in the streets of our nation. I'm going to let you know a secret. I'm excited about this stuff. You know why? Because when people are hopeless, Jesus becomes more prominent. When people look at their checkbooks and think, where's it all gone, or their taxes and thinking they're taking too much from me, they're going to find out the answer was never in that money anyway. Because too many people in our nation, and I would say in this church, have depended on that stuff way too long. And it's time to say, I'm going to be a Christ follower before I'm a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian, a Green, or whatever you are, I don't know. Because Christ is more important than all that stuff. All of it. And so, if three or four people, you're clapping. There's some folks who want to shoot me right now, too. I recognize that. <laughs> Do not let disappointment turn into bitterness. Don't let disappointment turn into bitterness. There are a lot of angry people out there. And... Uh, I understand righteous anger, and there are things to be righteously anger over, things I mentioned and other things. But don't become a bitter person. 
Don't become an angry person. Wells writes this, Jesus opposed injustice and evil because he hated sin, but he loved sinners, sinners of all stripes and flavors. Our problem, we love sin and hate sinners. We hate those people who believe differently than we do, yet we're called to love them. Wow. He's right. Look at the big picture. You know what C.S. Lewis said in World War II? He's, in World War II, C.S. Lewis wrote this. There is one benefit to war that I see. People are more likely to think about death and their need for God. We live in a society that's in disarray and rebellion right now. No question about it. And I think we live in a time when people need Jesus and want to hear about Jesus more than ever. More than that. When Jesus, the church, just take a look around this. We're in Temple, Texas, 65,000 people, 15 in Belton some surrounding neighborhoods. We, we average right now a little bit over 3,000 people a weekend. There are less than 400 churches in America that do that. And people say, why? What's happened? You're going to write a book? I'll never write a book about it. You know why it happens? Because the Word of God is taught unabashedly. That's why. And because we're going to worship God with our whole hearts. That's why. And because we're going to empower you to do ministry. That's why. And it's a work that He's done. Nobody else has done. But we're not going to back away from the Word of God. We're going to live lives like believers so that people will want to know who our king is and follow after him. And the final thing we're to do is pray for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says very clearly the thing that we're to do more than anything else is to pray for our leaders. So locally for our mayor and those who work with him, several of them come to this church, we pray. For our governor and those who work with him, we pray. For our president and those who work with him, we pray. The scriptures demand that of us. And so we pray. We serve a greater king. Let me, let, me, let me put it this way. Don't return evil for evil. You walk with Jesus, honor Jesus, look like Jesus. If people that don't know Jesus, they, they don't care if you're, what, what party affiliation you have. They don't care anything. What they want to know is who is the one that's changed your life. And that's my prayer for our body. He pursued God. He purged the land. He repaired the temple. The temple was in disarray. If you look at verse 8, it says in his 18th year of his reign, so now he's 26 years old, he purged the land and the houses at the end of verse 8 to repair the house of the Lord his God. So the next thing that he did is he began to repair the temple. The place where God was, he began to repair it. And as he repaired the temple, something amazing happened. Something amazing happened. By the way, it's probably a good time for me to tell you that uh, repairing the temple, building a temple at TBC, the elders and deacons recently approved the addition of another building. You see the first phase is parking across the street. We appreciate TISD letting us use that land. Parking's an issue here, as you know. We've got room to build a building where the portables are and some land back there. By God's grace, we pray that next year we can begin construction on that. Details will be forthcoming. We're going to move offices out there, some adult education out there. And uh, by God's grace, hopefully we will be able to accomplish those purposes. Then the third phase will be remodeling the current area and actually expanding the lobby, etc. So they rebuilt the temple. Teenage King Josiah pursued God, purged the land, repaired the temple. And then something else happened. They found a treasure. They found a treasure. Finding a treasure can bring great joy. This is a little kid named Griffin McCurry. Anybody ever hear Griffin McCurry? I'd never heard of him. Anybody ever go to the Gold City Gym Mine in Franklin, North Carolina? Anybody? Nobody? You can go there today. I looked it up online. You can go there today, and for five bucks, they give you one of these things where you pan, not for gold, but rubies and sapphires. Or sapphire. And uh, sapphires, whatever, you know, rubies and sapphire. And so you get the pan, and also you get to dig a bucket of dirt and take it with you. And usually it's just a bunch of rocks in there. 
Well, if he made Letterman, you know something different happened. You know what happened? He went to, they were on a family vacation. They went on his family vacation. When they went through Griffin McCurry's little bucket, he held this thing up and said, Dad, what do you think this is? It was a 1,100 sapphire, or 1,100 carat sapphire. 1,100 carats of sapphires. Dad said, stick it in your pocket right now, boy. (laughs) He didn't do that because if you go there and pay your five bucks, you get to keep whatever you find. So our family's going to vacation in North Carolina next year. <laughs> but now here's the reality. He does it, and I forget how much it was worth. I think, I think it was like $145,000 in 1995. Now, that's a pretty good treasure, wouldn't you say? I mean, wouldn't you go get a bucket of dirt for five bucks right now and take your, yeah. Let me tell you what happened. Something even greater happened. This is what happened. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple, they're going to use money to build the temple, Helkiah the priest found what? The Word of God. You see, they've been worshiping all these pagan gods. They've misplaced the Word of God. And all of a sudden, the priest said, Look what I found! And it wasn't an 1100 carat sapphire, he found what had been missing from the nation, and that was the word of God. And the amazing thing about Josiah, this young king, is the way he responded to what happened. He goes to him, and he brings the word of God. Now I'm in chapter 34, all the way down in verse 18. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. What did the king, what did Josiah have him do? He had him read God's word in his presence. He wanted to know what was in it. And so this godly 26-year-old king listens to it. And in verse 19, his response is one of mourning. He tears his clothes in the presence of the, of the, of the, the scribe who's reading it to him. That's a sign of mourning. What was he mourning about? Verse 21, because the wrath of God was coming upon the people because their fathers had not observed the word. Word of God according to the book. They had done evil. His father had led the nation into evil. His grandfather into evil. He is so convicted by God's word that he begins to mourn what's there. Two things to note. First of all, he, re- he had the word read to him. He didn't say, well, that's a nice scroll. Stick it on the shelf. He didn't say, that's a nice scroll, but it's not the right version. He had the word of God read. He was so convicted, it touched his heart in deep places that the next thing he did was respond in mourning. The Word of God convicts us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrates to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing, uh, nothing is hidden from it at all. The Word of God, when you read it, is convicting. Some of you do not read the Word of God because of that. See, if you're having... A sexual relationship outside of marriage, you're not going to read the Word of God. Yeah, you're, 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 you are clamping down on bitterness and unforgiveness, you're not going to read the Word of God. Because the Word of God is convicting. You look in your checkbook and you've not been generous with the Father. There's nothing given to ministry anywhere. You're not going to read the Word of God. Because I read out of Philippians chapter 2 where Jesus gave everything he was and everything he had. And so why would you read about that if you're not going to be generous like him? And really the word of God is convicting. Convicting. And so some of us don't read the word because we don't want to be convicted by the word. 
<clears throat> after conviction because condemnation. You look at verse uh, 21 and it says the condemnation is God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the nation because of their sin, because they disobey. There's commendation and the commendation is to Josiah, verses 27 and 28, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself because you've heard these words in, in the, against this place and its inhabitants because of all this. In verse 28 he says, I will let you go to your grave in peace. He says, I'm not going to rip the nation out of their land as long as you're alive, Josiah, because you have been a godly man. In chapter 35, they reinstitute Passover. They read the word of God. They're supposed to be celebrating Passover. So Josiah commands that the whole nation come and observe Passover. And there's a celebration. There's great joy throughout the land because of what Josiah has done. They celebrate and worship. Worship should be a time of celebration. It should be a time of celebration. A couple of months ago, we had uh, grandkids over. I get them over all the time, but a couple of months ago, when they were over, uh, Grayson, three-year-old, was laughing. I said, Gray, what are you laughing at? Something funny? I don't see it. Shook his head and said, nope. I said, what are you laughing at, Gray? Why are you laughing? Just want to, Papa Do. Just want to. <clears throat> I thought, isn't that the way we're supposed to live for Christ? Joyfully celebrating who he is. Why are you laughing? Because of who he is. God's word transformed that nation. And when Josiah died, the nation celebrated a godly king. In verse 33, he removed all the abominations from the lands and made all who were present serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. Teenagers, that's Josiah, your hero. Started at age 16 and made a difference through his whole life. And so we look at him and say, one man can make a difference. B.J. Higgins made a difference in a Muslim community in Morocco he'd never even been to. Josiah made a difference in a nation. The word of God not only informs, but it transforms us. That's the story of Afshin Ziafat. The Iranian guy you heard that, that, uh, that told that story, I want you to hear his testimony. Because it's a testimony that speaks about how the word of God can transform anyone's heart. Let's play it, guys. My name is Afshin Ziafat. I was born here in Houston, Texas. When I was two years old, my family moved back to Iran where my parents are from. In the late 70s, an Islamic revolution hit that country and we moved back to Houston when I was in the middle of first grade. I didn't speak English, I spoke Farsi, the language of Iran. And God in his incredible plan provided for me a Christian lady, a tutor, who would teach me the English language every day after school by reading me books. In the second grade, she came up to me and said, Afshin, I've been reading you all these books, but now I'm gonna hand you the most important book you'll ever read in your life and she handed me a small New Testament Bible. She gave me that Bible during the Iran hostage crisis when many people turned against my family because we were from Iran. But I'm so thankful that this one lady decided to look beyond the divisions of race and culture and class and pour herself into my life. I grew up in a Muslim family being taught the five pillars of faith of Islam and that Jesus Christ is just a prophet. My senior year in high school, I became curious with the person of Christ and I found that Bible sitting at the bottom of my closet waiting for me after 10 years. I began reading that Bible and came face to face with the love of Christ. And eventually, I would give my life to following Him. 
Unfortunately, I did not understand the cost of following Christ. You see, my father is a very prominent Muslim and has always been the most important person in my life. And because of that, I hid my faith from him for about a year and a half until he finally found out, sat me down and made me choose between him and Christ. Everything in me wanted to choose Islam and choose my father. My flesh wanted to choose my father and not lose my dad. But God gave me the strength to look at my dad and say, Dad, if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. The way they concluded was him saying, I choose Jesus. We heard him speak uh, 15 years ago. That story took place. He uh, has spoken all over the world. He goes to the Middle East twice a year to train Iranian pastors who leave Iran to be ministered to by him. He and his dad have reconciled. They have a relationship. But in 15 years, his dad has not heard him preach a single time. And uh, he has a brother and a sister. Both of them know Jesus now. And so as we heard his story, we prayed for him, prayed for his family. But how was his life changed? Some lady gave a second grader a Bible. And then he read it as a teenager. And now thousands of lives have been changed through his teaching of God's word. One person yielded to God, transformed by the word, can make a tremendous impact upon a nation, upon people. Father, that's our desire. Christ will be honored in and through us so that the world that's watching will want to know who you are. Help us to be men and women who represent you well in your name. Amen. You're dismissed.